you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. Approaching this series of episodes 100% chronologically, as you might have noticed. For example, the first ended with Marie Basset being executed, and then as the second part began, I had gone backwards in time a bit, and she was still alive. In a similar vein, though the last, though the last episode ended with Lavoisine being executed for murder and witchcraft, this episode will rewind a bit to when she's still alive. I'm thinking more narratively, and I felt that the death of Lavoisine was a good transition out of the poisoning allegations and into another phase of the affair, although properly speaking, these allegations began before her death. There are still a few poisoning allegations, but not as many. As things were left last time, the magician known as Lesage had told Gabriel Nicolas de Lorraine and other investigators for the Chambre Ardente that Catherine Monvoisine or La Voisine, had visited the royal palaces often, beginning around 1675. He had also begun to hint about Madame de Montespan, King Louis' principal mistress, and some mysterious links that she had to La Voisine. He said that the poisoner had helped a woman named Cato gain a job in Montespan's household, also that she endeavored to install there a Madame Vertemart. He later clarified that this was repayment for an affair which Lavoisine had undertaken for Madame Montespan. Marquis de Louvois, the Secretary of State who oversaw the Chambre Ardente's investigations, wrote to the king on September 27, 1679, saying he felt that Lesage seemed very confident that his allegations that Lavoisine had visited the royal palaces would be confirmed. However, he also stated that he thought that the huge network of contacts Lavoisine had made it unlikely she was engaged in anything too criminal, which is, of course, complete bull. Of course, this did not sway the opinions of the Chambre Ardent any, as we have seen in the last episode. He didn't mention any of the allegations that Madame de Montespan may have been implicated in the affair. Lesage had already stated that Claude de Vin de Oale, a maid of Montespan, had been a client of Lavoisine's and the king had replied that he believed it impossible that Lesage spoke the truth when he spoke of her. In fact, he ordered the Chambre Ardent to not bother her about the matter unless they had confirmation of the testimony. Olympia Mancini, the Comtesse de Soissons, was reported by La Voisine as having been a client of hers, and likewise, Lesage claimed that her sister, 
Marie-Anne Man Mancini, Duchesse de Boulon, as one of his. The Mancini sisters were two of the Mazarinettes, seven women who were the nieces of Cardinal Mazarin, Secretary of State early on in the reign of Louis XIV. But upon closer examination of the Chambre Ardente, Lesage's statement at least seems to be just a bit generous. Calling her a client wasn't exactly accurate. She came to his house accompanied by the Duc de Vendôme. Then Lesage asked them to write some questions on a piece of paper. The Duc de Vendôme took the pen and wrote asking whether the Duc de Beaufort was truly dead and where was the Duc de Nevers. The note was sealed, Lesage bound it with a silk thread, and placed it in an envelope in which he put a little bit of sulfur. Then he directed the Duc de Vendôme to, to burn it, telling the Duchess that she would find this note at her palace in a porcelain vase. She searched for it, but found nothing. Vendôme went again to Lesage, but did not succeed any better. He was cheated out of his money. The Duchess found the affair ridiculous, told her friends, and even wrote about it to the Duc de Boulon, when, who was in the army. The oft-quoted Madame de Sévigny says that the Duchess de Boulon went to La Voisine to ask her for some poison to make her old and tedious husband die in order to be able to marry a young man whom she loved. This young man was the Duc de Vendôme, who led her by one, and Duc de Boulon, her husband, by the other hand. It is laughable. When a Mancini does such a stupid thing as that, the sorcerers take that very seriously and frighten the whole of Europe through a trifle. When on trial, Boulan said that when leaving the court, I never knew such wise men could ask such stupid questions. Though she was acquitted, she was banished from court for her flippant responses. The other sister, however, was of more interest. She had supposedly complained to La Voisine about Louise de la Valier, yet another of the king's mistresses, saying she would carry her vengeance further and would stop at nothing. Olympia had been a close friend of Henriette, Duchess of Orleans, who was the sister-in-law of King Louis, being married to his younger brother Philippe. It was, however, rumored that she and Louis were in love. The affair being a cause for gossip, although it seems unlikely anything really was even happening, Olympia installed in Henriette's employ a woman named Louise de la Valier, so that Louis might claim his visits were to Louise and not Henriette. She turned against Louise, however, when she, and not Henriette, became the king's mistress. In 1670, Henriette died, supposedly of poison. Having drunk a glass of water, she was suddenly seized with pain and collapsed. She died a few hours later, maintaining that she had been poisoned. She had been in ill health for weeks. Madame de Montpensier said that she looked like a corpse. An autopsy was done, and it was said that her liver and intestines were destroyed, and that her lower belly was full of bile. King Louis's doctor, below, felt that despite her opinion and the opinion of many others in the court, she had not been poisoned. It was very boiling bile, very corrupt and malign, and very impetuous, which caused all the disorders in the foresaid parts, and gangrened them. Nonetheless, a servant named Morel was tried and executed for poisoning her. But of course, once the Comtesse de Soissons' involvement in the affair of the poisons was known, it was presumed that she had poisoned her. It's actually thought by modern researchers that uh, Henriette may have actually died of peritonitis, resulting from untreated appendicitis, 
or maybe from an, from an ectopic pregnancy. One more modern theory is that she might have inherited Porphyria through her great-grandmother, Mary Queen of Scots, who was thought to have suffered from that condition. There was an interesting event while Olympia's husband was on his deathbed in 1673, supposedly also from poison. According to a priest named Deshwasi, her husband was ill in Champagne. One evening she was uncertain whether she should go to the, she should go the next day to see him or not when an old nobleman of her household offered to tell her, by the medium of a spirit, if Monsieur Le Comte should die or not. Madame de Boulon was present, together with, a, with Duke de Vendôme and Duke de Villeroy. The noble brought into the study a little girl who was five years old, and he told her to hold in her hand a glass of pure water, then made his conjurations. The little girl said that the water became muddy. The nobleman told quietly to those who were present, that he was going to command the spirit to make appear in the glass a white horse, in case Monsieur Le Comte should die, and a tiger should he not. Then he asked the little girl whether she saw anything in the glass. Ah! exclaimed the child. I see a lovely white horse. The same was repeated five times, and each time the little girl announced the death by different signs, which de Vendôme or Madame de Boulon suggested to the nobleman in such a low voice that the little girl was not able to hear them. In the case of the husband, however, as he was on a military campaign at the time, if he was poisoned, it was almost certainly not by his wife, as was a rumor. Lesage also later implied that the President Lamoignon, who had recently died and who presided over the trial of Madame de Brinvilliers, had been killed by Comtesse de Soissons during, because during the trial, he had learned something about her. Well, we just can't get away from Madame de Brinvilliers either. Shortly after this, Louvois wrote to the Chambre Ardente, concerns having been raised about the accusations that by now were rife against nobles. The problems which you are worried about, that some, that some of these procedures will result in the discrediting of important persons, might well happen, but it would be worse if it were seen that His Majesty had given protection to people accused of crimes of the sort in question. It is this which has made him take the position of leaving everything everything to the conduct of the judges, and in all these matters, to use his authority only to support the execution of things which might be asked of him for the cause of justice. As for the Comtesse de Soissons, she fled France before she could be apprehended, maintaining that she fled because of Marquis de Louvois. Marquis de Louvois is my mortal foe, because I refused him the hand of my daughter. He was powerful enough to accuse me. He has false witnesses. If he could obtain a decree against such, against a person of such importance as I am, he will finish the crime and make me die on the scaffold, or at, or at least he will always keep me in prison. I prefer freedom. I will justify myself later. At one point after she fled, she was living in Spain at the court of the notoriously inbred Charles II, when she supposedly poisoned the king's wife, Marie-Louise d'Orléans, Henriette's daughter, Lesage also claimed that a Marquis de Sessac, who had been exiled from court for cheating at gambling, although he had been readmitted in 1674, had come to him seeking some way to win at gambling, particularly against the king. Almost as an afterthought, he asked for the murder of the Comte de Clermont, his brother. Lesage performed a ritual in which bones dug out of a cemetery were sewn into the sleeves of a shirt. De Sessac had promised to pay Lesage 
a certain amount, but as his brother did not die, the magician received only a fraction of that. In the end, de Sessac fled France before he could be tried. He also claimed that before he had been sentenced to the galleys, he had been approached by the Vicomtesse de Polignac, who would ask that the affections of her suitors be maintained, and later for the permanent removal from court of the unpopular Louise de la Valier. Two pigeon hearts were buried, and then Lesage and Polignac went to Saint-Germain to spy on the king as he took mass. Polignac met, muttered some incantations Lesage had taught her that would make the king love her, and upon this, Lesage congratulated himself on causing her to quit La Voisine and her poisoning ways. Like Comtesse de Soissons and Marquis de Sessac, Vicomtesse de Polignac fled France before she could be apprehended. Orders had been given to bring Lesage's former partner, the priest Francois Mariette, in to be questioned for fairly early on. He was not found in, until 1680, however, in the city of Toulouse. Both Lesage and Mariette agreed the, that Madame de Montespan had been a client of La Voisine's, but when the two went into business for themselves, they took her as a client with them. They said that they had performed a, magic, a magical ritual at the rooms of Montespan's sister, the Madame de Tianges, at the Palace of Saint-Germain. Mariette read scripture, Lesage burnt incense, and Montespan asked for the king's good graces to be secured for her, as well as the death of Louise de la Valier, according to Lesage, or merely her removal from court, according to Mariette. The timing of this ritual would likely correspond fairly well to the time that Montespan actually became the king's mistress. They claimed to have performed several more rituals for Montespan over the next few months. Once again, Lesage claimed a spell was performed by Mariette using human bones, meant to cause the death of Louise de la Valier, but once again, Mariette denies this. Madame de Sévigny said that it was widely presumed many things would be learned upon the execution of La Voisine, but that nothing happened for several months. La LaRue, the woman who had supposedly delivered to La Voisine the poison meant for Marguerite Le Ferron's husband, was executed in April. Marguerite Le Ferron was put on trial, but it was determined that her husband had not, in fact, been poisoned, and she was fined 1,500 livres and banished from Paris for nine years. Francoise de Drew was tried at the end of that month, and it was taken into consideration that neither her husband nor the other lady she planned to poison had actually died. She was only fined 500 livres, and according to Madame de Sévigny, several justices were inclined to hand down no sentence whatsoever. The Comte de Bussy said, This woman was innocent. The judges imposed this little penalty on her to save their honor. Another commenter, named Breyer, said, however, that she was fined more out of consideration for some members of her family than on account of her innocence. Of the affair of the poisons up to this point, Madame de Sévigny said that Gabriel Nicolas de Lorraine was at this point hated by all right-thinking individuals. Furthermore, she said that in her opinion, the fact that he was still alive proved that there were no poisoners in Paris. But the king ordered the Chambre Ardente to, to continue its work. And continue it did, and the affair of the poisons was soon to leave such small things as poison behind. In May 1679, a Martine Bergerot was being questioned. It later transpired she was another of the fortune towers consulted by the Duchesse de Vivonne. 
She said that some years before, a Francoise Philoster had led to her a document detailing how she had sold her soul to the devil. Philoster was sought, but was not found until some months later, in December 1679, hiding in the town of Cousset near Vichy. She had applied some months previously to the household of Marie-Angelique de Scorisles, Duchesse de Fontanges, who was, you guessed it, yet another of King Louis' mistresses. The king was 41 at the time they began their affair, and Marie-Angelique was 17, but, well, he was the king. When La Floster was retrieved, she admitted freely to the Chambre Ardente that she had taken part in a black magic ceremony, along with a compatriot named Simon, around the time that Bergerot had specified. She was not questioned until May 1680, at which time she said that she was, that she was giving birth to an illegitimate child at the time. Then, Simon made her sit down on the edge of the circle, telling her that the spirits were within, and that one of the candles was for Lucifer, and another for another devil, whose name she does not remember, and so on with the other candles, and she did not hold the candle of black pitch in her hand, though it was lit. Simon made her say, among other things, that Briziol was to come in the name of Picard and Simon, and they made her renounce the chrism, baptism, and the church. After that, she said some more words, which she does not remember. She also implicated a priest named Jacques Cotton in the rituals. It is true that Cotton, priest of St. Paul's and schoolmaster, came about five or six years ago on a Monday Thursday to the house of Maitre Jean, who was then porter at the Quinsvinx. And in the night between Monday Thursday and Good Friday, at midnight, Cotton, dressed in priest's robes, said mass in a little room over the porter's room. Present at the mass were herself and Lalande, who said the responses, while Lacourt, who had brought cotton, was outside with Maitre Jean, who had brought the vestments and the altar furniture to his room for use at the mass, at which cotton consecrated a host, performed the elevation, and invoked the three princes of the demons in unintelligible words. And cotton had had the invocation, which consisted of few words, in writing on the altar, which had been set up for the purpose, and after the invocation, he finished the Mass in this place, and wrapped the consecrated host in a corporal cloth he had brought, and she had never since asked him what he had done with the host. La Philoster said that the child she had given birth to during this ritual was taken away by Simon, who she feared had killed it as an offering to the devil. Simon, however, swore that this was not the case, and that she had put the child in a foundling hospital, fearing that it was La Philoster who would harm it. Cotton's rituals were meant to enhance magical ability. For his part, Jacques Cotton didn't deny that he had conducted the rituals. He said he had conducted other services for La Philoster as well. There were often wax figures on the altar during these services, he said, and while La Philoster claimed they were meant to aid in the conclusion of love affairs, Cotton believed they were meant to kill. La Philoster implicated a woman named Madeleine Chapelain as well. According to De La Rainey, she was engaged in a continual practice of impieties, sacrilege, and malefice. She was a former landlady of Louis Davenens from the first part of this series, and according to La Philoster, she had, on one occasion, asked her to use black magic to kill a miller. When she refused, Chapelaine carried out some spell on her own, utilizing bones and excrement. She had also, La Philoster said, killed a priest named Sharpie, and was actually the one who poisoned Marguerite Terrasse du Parc, 
and not the poet Jean Racine, as Lavoisine had claimed. Another piece of the web came to light on June 5, 1680, when the name of another renegade priest, Etienne Giborg, was given to the investigators by La Floster. Giborg had been habitually employed in various parishes throughout the city, although he habitually ignored his priestly vows of celibacy, taking up residence with a series of mistresses, including the Lalaroux who had supposedly given poison to La Voisine in 1669, with which to poison Jerome Leferon. She also said that Giborg had not only murdered children during the Black Masses he conducted, but had, in fact, killed several of his own children. He had seven children with a woman named Jean Chanfrain, and of those, three went missing after given to Giborg. In one case, he took the child and then returned to Jean without it, and when she confronted him, he said, it was no business of hers, and she would not be burdened with the sin of it. Giborg claimed when arrested that he had been present at the Black Mass, at which La Floster gave birth. When he was questioned about other black masses, he called on God's mercy, and proclaimed that others had taken advantage of his moral failings. On October 10, 1680, he described one he conducted for the stable master at Versailles. Leroy, governor of the pages of the Petite Curé, first spoke to him about working for Madame de Montespan and promised him 50 pistoles and a benefice of 2,000 pounds. The first mass he said with this intention was at Les Menil, near, near Montillery, on the belly of a woman who had come with another great personage. At the consecration, he recited the conjuration, Astaroth, Asmodeus, princes of friendship, I conjure you to accept the sacrifice I offer you of this child, for the things I ask of you, which are that the friendship of the king and the dauphin may continue to, towards me, and that I may be honored by the princes and princesses of the court and that nothing I ask of the king may be denied me, either for my relatives or servants. He performed another on behalf of La Pelletier, the woman well-versed in the properties of various herbs, who had made potions for La Voisine. Also, Lesage linked the priest Giborg to La Voisine, and also claimed that the Duchesse de Vivon had taken part in some of the black masses. Furthermore, Gibor gave up the name of several other priests who were in the habit of conducting black masses. Among these were Gilles de Rowe of Notre Dame de Bonne Nouvelle, interestingly the church La Voisine attended and where she was arrested the year before, the canon of Notre Dame, a bishop named Gilles Lefranc, and the Father Guignard of Borges Cathedral. All these new revelations led de la Rainey, in a letter to the Marquis de Louvois, to recall a panic that had swept the city just four years before. Remember the great disturbance in Paris in 1676, when there were seditious gatherings and mobs and runnings to and fro in several parts of the city through the rumor that people carried off children to cut their throats, though no one then understood what the cause of the rumor could be. The mob, however, proceeded to various excesses against women suspected of being child stealers. The king ordered an inquiry, Proceedings were taken, and a woman who was guilty of violence was condemned to death, but obtained a special pardon. The British press of the day also reported on this panic, which occurred in 1675, not 1676 as De La had thought, and said that a noblewoman was supposedly sick with leprosy and had been hiring groups of armed men to procure children's blood to be used as a supposed cure. Alright, now I'm gonna run... Um 
two promos for some other shows that are in the uh, Straight Up Strange Network that I'm in. And uh, I'll be back in a minute with the rest of the story. Hi there, I'm Oz from the Oddball Aussie Podcast. Do you enjoy hearing about ufology, the paranormal, cryptids, and anything else that's strange or unknown? If so, then my show might just be for you. Join me for a different topic once a week and a midweek show that's all about listeners' true stories. Follow me on Twitter at Aussie Oddball or email me at theoddballaussie at hotmail.com. Hope you enjoy the show and stay safe out there in the weird. Hi folks, my name is Miranda McLaughlin and I'm the host of All Things Dreams, a podcast dedicated to dream experiences and dream interpretation. Are you curious about dreams but don't have time for all that pesky research? Well then you're in luck because you can leave the research to me and just tune into All Things Dreams where we discuss loads of different dream experiences, dream themes, and dream topics like sleep paralysis, lucid dreaming, inception dreams, and so much more. Just check us out wherever you get your podcasts. Bye. But investigators had another informant who had been brought into custody on January 26th of that year. This informant was Marguerite Monvoisin, the daughter of Lavoisin. Lesage had said that Lavoisin had several times claimed that she was on the verge of making 500,000 levers through some unknown means. She later claimed to him that this was merely a figure of speech for her prospects looking up. A lover of hers named Denis Pocolo, a stonemason, had prepared some sort of petition with a friend of his named Romani. The contents of the, of the petition are unclear but it is known that Lavoisine was very focused on delivering it to the king. When her husband asked her why, she claimed that she must succeed or die trying. Later, Marguerite Monvoisine was to claim that the petition itself was poisoned, and this represented an assassination attempt against the king. She also implicated Catherine Trianon in this plot. When asked, she claimed she didn't really know Giborg very well. However, after her mother's execution, Monvoisin's testimony changed somewhat. Now she revealed a new plot, in which Romani would pose as a silk merchant and give the Duchess de Fontanges a special cloth which would kill her when handled. Should this plot not work, he also had a specially treated pair of gloves with which he would also attempt to poison her. By the time the silk merchant ruse was carried out, the king would already be dead from the poison petition and, that, and the type of poison used in the case of Fontanges would make it appear as though she had died of grief. This, she claimed, was the, was the source of the huge sum of money Lavoisin had been expecting. She further said that her mother had often done, done spells and made potions for Madame de Monespan, and that the entire poison plot was hatched by her. By July 26th, she was claiming that in the case that the poison petition plot failed, Latrianon herself would try to kill the king. By throwing herself at, her, at his feet and throwing some poison powder into a pocket of his robe so that he would poison himself 
the next time he uses handkerchief. Controller of finance Jean-Baptiste Colbert, who was notably cynical in regards to the proceedings of the Chambre Ardente, said that this would have been an absolutely impossible thing, but on the other hand, Louvois and De La Rainey were forced to admit it dovetailed with some of the claims made by Madeleine de Lagrange four years before. Under questioning on August 10, 1680, La Floster made an accusation that Guiborg had performed a black mass for the benefit of Madame de Montespan. In October, Marguerite Montboisin described the same event, but neglected to name Montespan. She remembered that Pelletier brought two afterbirths to Saint-Denis on two different occasions to Guiborg, priest, one of which was later distilled by Pelletier and the other by Dumainel. It is also true that a midwife who lived at the corner of the Rue de Duports also, also distilled the entrails of a child which the mother had born there, brought by Voisin, her mother, for an abortion. Before the distillation, the child's entrails and the mother's afterbirth had been taken to Saint-Denis, to Guibourg, by her mother, the midwife, and the child's mother, on whose belly her mother, on her return, said Guibourg had celebrated Mass, and that the woman was then still all covered with blood. It's unclear if Monaspawn was the mother referred to in this testimony, or if she merely benefited from the magical proceedings. Another seeress, by the name of La Belier, said that La Floster had asked her to deliver an aphrodisiac powder to the Madame de Monaspawn. She also claimed that La Floster had sought to enter the services of the Duchess de Fontanges in order to kill her and to, re and to restore Madame de Montespan to the good graces of the king. However, when La Belier was brought into confrontation with La Floster, though she insisted on her stories, La Floster denied she knew Madame Montespan at all. Marguerite Monvoisin said that any time Madame de Montespan thought that the king's love for her was waning, she would go to see her mother and ask for magical aid in the form of either spells or powders. Sometimes, Mademoiselle de Oelay would come in her place. In a confrontation with Catherine Tryanon on August 12th, Monvoisin insisted on her, her part in the assassination plot against the king, even though Le Tryanon denied any part in this absurd plot. On August 20th, Monvoisin bizarrely claimed that she couldn't identify Madame de Montespan although some of her early testimony claimed that she had been present at some of the black masses her mother and Etienne Guibourg had conducted, ones at which she claimed Madame de Montespan was present. The king was obviously informed of these accusations against the women closest to him. When de la Rainey met, met with the king at Versailles on September 10th, he said that the king shared his concerns about the developments. Of the implications against Montespan, it was said and Louis XIV and La Grande Mademoiselle, Louis was forced to ask himself if the woman he adored above all others, and who had borne him seven children, was a vile corrupter. After the executions of La Floster and the priest Cotton on October 1st, Louis declared that no further action should be taken against the Duchesse de Bavon. Now Marguerite's testimony changed again. This time, it was the Mademoiselle de Oelais who had plotted against the king in the company of an unknown Englishman. In fact, Lavoisin and Guiborg were to be given asylum in England after the plot had concluded. But she had not intimated that Guiborg had been a part of the plot against the king before now. Lesage, however, had, 
Furthermore, he claimed that two men named Vaudier and Latour were involved, and that the aphrodisiacs Monospawn sent her to retrieve from La Voisine were to be replaced with poison. On September 1st, though, a man named Galay, from whom La Philoster often bought various sorts of powders, said that as far back as 1676, she wished to procure both an aphrodisiac powder and an undetectable poison on behalf of Madame de Monospawn. The aphrodisiac he had given her contained cantharides. Now this substance, which has been mentioned a few times in this series before, is a substance distilled from a species of blister beetle known as Lyta vesicatoria. Known as Spanish fly, it was often used as an aphrodisiac in the past, although it's now known to be toxic. De La Reine wondered whether some of the king's vapors were due to an application of cantharides. The proceedings of the Chambre Ardente were suspended for several months, and did not resume until May of 1681. Anne Somerset, whose book as I said I use as a primary source for this series, thinks it's difficult to accept the testimony of Marguerite Montbossine. She notes the number of, a number of discrepancies and contradictions in her testimonies, and a general air of instability about her. It was noted that when first arrested, she attempted suicide by the unlikely means of strangling herself. She also later claimed that her mother had poisoned her, twice. La Renée thought that there were problems with some of the testimony. For example, Giborg swore that at the last Black Mass he had conducted for Madame de Montespan, he had seen a pact she made, asking for Louise de la Valire to be dismissed from court. However, this would have been in 1675 by his testimony, and by this point, de la Valire was already absent from court. Thus, Monospawn would have, would have had no reason to ask for something that had already taken place. In addition, the priest Mariette, associated with Lesage early on, had sworn that at his last meeting with Monospawn, she expressed her happiness that her father had been appointed governor of Paris. However, her father had actually not been appointed to this position until nearly a year after Mariette was imprisoned. Of Guyborg and Marguerite Monvoisin, he wrote, They accorded with each other on, cir on circumstances which were so specific and so horrible that it is difficult to conceive that two people could have imagined and fabricated things so exactly alike. He admitted that his desire to protect the king from harm may have clouded his judgment in the matter. He had doubts about the involvement of Madame de Monespawn, but the picture is given of the doubts and fluctuations of an honest man whose responsibilities somewhat rankle in his breast, and who sees an equal peril in dishonoring the throne and in permitting a guilty woman to remain near the king. He said he felt that La Floster's testimony, that she was trying to be placed in the employ of Fontanges, indicated that after the poisoning pot plots of La Voisine had failed, Monaspawn hatched a second plot, which he felt was very unlikely, given that it would have been while Lavoisine was in prison and could at any time have turned on her. There was no evidence that Monaspawn was aware of the accusations made about her. As discussed earlier, the king, though, most certainly was. Jean-Baptiste Colbert, as noted, was cynical about the proceedings, and his suspicions seemed to be confirmed when they, when they examined all the accusations against Monaspawn. He was friendly with Monaspawn, and felt that Louvois, who was not, may have been subtly influencing the proceedings to discredit and vilify enemies of his. Interestingly, 
This is almost exactly what was alleged by the Comtesse de Soissons. Primi Visconti said of his feelings, Colbert looked unfavorably on the tri tribunal, for, besides the fact that it was costing the king a great deal, he recognized that it was defaming the nation. Colbert, as well as a lawyer of, by the name of Claude Duplessis, began doing their own investigation. They determined that, in their opinion, and despite the opinions of de la Reine, it would have been a simple matter for prisoners of Vincennes, as most of the people implicated in the affair of the poisons were, to communicate with each other and formulate testimony. And specifically, of the charges against Monasmon, he stated, These are things which cannot be conceived of. His Majesty, who knows Madame de Monaspon to the very bottom of her soul, will never persuade himself that she had been capable of these abominations. Duplessis said that he believed it was the use of torture that had led to the sprawling nature of the affair. It was, he said, the means by which the chamber would be perpetuated and the affair immortalized, although, as Anne Somerset observes, Lesage, Guibourg, and Marguerite Monvoisin caused plenty of trouble without torture being a component. In the end, the king declined to disband the Chambre, though he forbade them from, from pursuing the allegations against the Madame de Monespawn any further, and anyone else implicated along with her by either La Philoster or Marguerite Monvoisin. It resumed operations in May 1681, but was formally disbanded after the execution of Louis de Venenze's servant La Chaboisier, in 1682. In all, 218 individuals were arrested in the course of the investigations, and of those, 36 were executed, 5 were sentenced to the galleys, and 23 were exiled from France. The principal players in this episode, Lesage, Marguerite Monvoisin, and Etienne Guibourg, were all sentenced to life imprisonment. The affair of the poisons was over. So, I don't really think Madame de Montespan was guilty of any of this stuff that they claim. I think some of the earlier cases, the earlier poisoning cases, some of them very well might have been legitimate. But once they start getting into all the noblemen and everything, and they start accusing them of Satanism and witchcraft and all this kind of stuff, and I mean, as I said in the first episode, a lot of nobles were interested in the occult somewhat, and they were um, kind of fooled with minor league occult things like fortune-telling and stuff like that, but I don't know. I mean, maybe some of the nobles were more into that than was previously let, was let on. I don't know. What do you think? And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast and you can DM me ideas there. I also now have a Patreon at patreon.com forgdark. That's F-O-R-G-D-A-R-K. And so, until next time, this is Andrew, signing off.
This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.